You're listening to the Learning While Working podcast from Sprout Labs. Sprout Labs builds digital learning platforms that enable enterprises to author, deliver and measure high-impact digital learning ecosystems. Welcome to our next podcast in our series on AI and L&D. I'm Robin Pettit, the founder of Sprout Labs and the host of the Learning While Working podcast. To go along with this podcast series, there's an ebook as well that includes edited transcriptions of all the interviews, and it includes an introduction to what is AI, what is machine learning, and some of the jargon that gets talked about in the interviews as well. That ebook is in the resources section of the Sprout Labs website. Ben Best from H2Lab is back on the podcast in this interview. Ben's passionate about social learning to build high-impact learning experiences. Also, H2Labs are the people behind Learning Locker, which, which is the open source learning record store for XAPI data that we personally use at Sprout Labs. Ben talked about the work that H2Labs have been doing at the Learning by Working Conference and how they're measuring social learning. The recording of that conference session goes into more depth on the work they're doing than this podcast does. So if you're interested in what Ben's doing, I really do encourage you to hunt out and watch that recording. The work H2Labs is doing is built around a series of machine learning methods that are called natural language processing, which I think of as a series of methods for looking at patterns in language. It's actually maybe the most complicated area of machine learning, by the way. The podcast starts by exploring data, AI, and automation in L&D, and then moves into using natural language processing and measuring social learning data. Welcome back to the Learning by Working podcast, Ben. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me back. Look, it's really interesting. I mean, last time we talked, um, a lot of the podcasts I was doing around um, XAPI were sort of collecting it and a little bit about what thinking about what, what people are doing with it. The world seems really different now. Um, we've had an explosion of AI and machine learning technologies and people starting to think about automation. What do you think are some of the potential usages of some of these sorts of types of technologies in learning and development? Yeah, I think I think you're right, Robin. I think we're we're starting to move on to the to more of the so what um, of data. Data is one of those natural things that people want, a bit like money. Do you want more money? Sure. Well, what are you actually going to spend it on? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm probably better at spending money than I am at using data. But the kind of once you've actually got it, people imagine that benefits will accrue, and in some cases they might. But actually putting it to work is is difficult sometimes. And there's been kind of two two angles that, that folks have been going down, especially in, in my guise as a, a, as a vendor of XAPI technology. Uh, people start off at, at analysis and analytics and wanting to understand what works. And that's wonderful. And we've had some nice case studies of, of where that's been um, quite successful. But it's also quite rare. It's difficult to, to have that luxury of time to, to get into some of that analysis. It's, it's difficult to get the breadth and depth of data that you want from various other silos to really prove a performance improvement. And it, it, it can be a luxury because the reality of, of how a lot of L&D departments are seen at the moment, it, you know, is that procurement function, I've got a problem, go procure some training, and then we move on. To think that that's part of a wider feedback loop of actually improving the training, or that you really owned that training in the first place, or, or that anybody's really paying attention. So you know, it's an interesting area because we kind of feel like a bit chicken and egg. If we, we could be more like marketing, we could bring KPIs to the table, then we'd get listened to. But what marketing has is that very clear relationship, uh, at least in marketing's mind, to to the performance of the business, to, to the value. And, and we're still stuck a little bit as a cost center. 
So I think that's a tricky, tricky maneuver and, and one that is still worth pursuing. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's the end of analytics, but I think people are starting to look broader at, at things like automation, like you mentioned, to say, well, OK, analytics is one thing, knowing what works and, and being able to link, link that back. That would be wonderful. Let's keep pursuing. But I need to accrue more benefits than than what I'm getting there out of collecting this data. And automation, to me, seems like the next logical step. If, I, if I've got this cost center that is training and development, then how can I move faster at lower cost uh, with more personalization, more relevance, more engagement, things like that. So I think increasingly actually automation and powering the machines that sit behind learning is where uh, the benefits are going to accrue from, from having collected that data. Yeah, so in one of the other um, podcasts, I've talked with Mark from Filtered and their Magpie platform and sort of talking about that sort of process to sort of um, collecting and profiling people to be able to then serve up the right bit of learning for them at the right time. And I think that's a really nice example of something that's normally not personalised at a large scale or this type of automation. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a particularly good example because we have a partnership with Filtered. Filtered use one of our tools, Learning Locker, and they're, they're adopters of the XAPI and things like that. So always pleased to talk about Mark and Filtered. I think what they're doing is is genuine and and I like it, but what I am seeing, I am seeing this increase in um, folks that are delivering either a content portal, whether it's their own content or curated content, and there's a heck of a lot of machine learning seeping into the marketing at the moment. Um, you know, I've seen it in space repetition tools, in learning experience platforms, and more, where the 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 sort of the end game, or at least the ultimate answer, or the thing is, is we've got machine learning that makes this better, and I see precious little in most of that not all of it but in most of that to actually back that up and there's there's two things that, that kind of concern me about when people say we use machine learning to improve our recommendations or something like that one is is scale because to actually do that credibly at scale you need a huge amount of data and so what the guys places like filter have done is a years of research b they're dedicated to it it's not their side, kind of side gig that came out of something and see they have released publicly available products that get people using stuff for free and um, you know if you look at people in the in the learning experience platform space where they're saying we give you smart recommendations um, not that this is a, a necessarily an endorsement for Degreed but Degreed has a credible story in that space because they had a B2C offering which means they had at least the potential to accrue a heck of a lot of data that then they could spot patterns out of and actually use machine learnings uh, to, to understand the patterns of that usage. If you don't have that set of training data, that initial data that you can let the machine run over to understand the potential relationships and then to prove or disprove those hypotheses, which are all in the machine, they're not, not hypotheses of people, you can't really be using machine learning in that sense. What I think a lot of people are doing is they're coming up with with some ranking stack that they, they maybe it's, it's bold enough to call it an algorithm that basically says there's a, there's a number that every piece of content for, for an individual has a number ranked against it, one to a million. And if it's a million, then it's very suitable. And if it's one, it's not. And that number's getting nudged up and down by a set of rules, these sort of hyperparameters that a person has made. So they're talking about machine learning and AI, but they're probably not doing it. Or if they are, they're not evidencing how they got the scale of data to do it and how the machine actually learns. It seems much more likely that folks are kind of nudging a recommendation up and down a scale in quite a linear fashion based on what some people have liked or, or what some people have done. And that's not quite the same for me as, as 
true machine learning. Yeah. I actually even had um, developers do it to me, Ben, where they've talked about building AIs and when I've drilled into it, it's a really just a logic system is what they've built. Mm. But it's got it's got some smarts to it and because it's sort of got, got some complexity to it, they're sort of thinking, oh, yeah, this is actually a type of AI and it's actually not using these types of technologies that we're talking about, which sort of build on existing data to build insights into things. I, I think I think that's exactly what I see. And it's not to say that you can't get some, you know, the, the, the broader picture, we want something to be artificially intelligent. What are we asking for? We're asking for something to demonstrate a human level of intelligence. Now, could some simplistic things that are rule-based and, and defined make that? Uh, yeah, they, they certainly can. There's been a whole field of, of very explicit rule-based stuff that has pushed down AI for a while. Doesn't make it machine learning. Does Could still be AI. Um, but I guess my, my, my concern is I always go back to that routine of like, what if you you're trying to be artificially intelligent about something you're trying to demonstrate what a human would do and if you're coming to me and saying uh, hey ben you know what film do you recommend i don't recommend films to to you robin on the basis of their title their genre and who starred in it I mean, you know imagine that you know all i ever do is recommend films based on their title that would be a terrible human thing to no human would do that You'd obviously know about you'd you'd have seen a bunch of films and you'd have understood them you'd have remembered them and you'd make links between between content and emotions and activities that occurred in the content. I think a lot of people are doing a lot of this stuff based on titles, keywords, descriptions. So you're not even really reaching that level of it's not human-like intelligence. That's not how a human would recommend it. Yeah, cool. I just realised we dive deep into recommendation engines, um, Ben. What are some of the other types of automations you think could be really sort of useful in learning and development? Yeah, it's a really, really good point. I mean, it, recommendations kind of predominate. And it, I think it's a, there's a chance that people think when we're talking about machine learning in, in our field, that what you're going to get is a recommendation. Yeah. And... And because it's actually, it's one of the classic bits of L&D, figuring out what a need is for an organisation or a person and then making a su suggestion or delivering something, it's actually a very natural fit. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's kind of the, it's, it's kind of what we should be doing as curators of connections of content or so on and so forth. So that's quite obvious. I mean, the, the areas that I'm more, I'm not, not uninterested in recommendations, totally am, but one of my personal areas is around a text analysis, around semantic analysis and understanding what it is people are saying when they're, uh, when they're talking within and from each other in a learning environment. So this has been one of my areas of, of passion for a while because I'm, I'm big into social and peer-to-peer -peer stuff. And one of my bugbears there is, you know, our initial problem in that field was getting people to talk because we had just decades of empty forum, empty wiki, blogs no one used. So we could apply social media tools to learning, but it didn't make people talk. Now folks are getting a bit smarter uh, about that. Um, we've, we've had a lot of experience of using gamification and nudges to, to structure a social learning experience. We see communication tools in the organization blurring the boundary between learning and working. You, you think of a Slack or a Yammer. So conversation online is less of a, a problem in terms of fostering it uh, at the moment but then you get to the second problem of so what uh, you've got a lot of people making comments conversations but but where's the learning and that has twofold issue one is from from an instructional design or from the training department's point of view how can you understand that that what people were talking about was useful and and showed progression and the second thing that i think is quite useful is is how can you then use that that understanding of what was said to resurface it to, to people down the line. 
one, I've, I've got a young son, and so I spend half of my Googling time questions like, is it normal that the child does not go to sleep before nine o'clock and various other things like that. And, and it tends to be that what I get back is forums. I get back mum's net and various other things like that, that that show me threads where somebody had a question a bit like that and then various folks chimed in and, and, and said what it could be. Now, some of those are, are really useful. Some of those, typically the health ones, always end in cancer and death. So you've got to try and avoid those. But the, uh, some of those are quite useful and give some level of reassurance. And I think that's kind of almost interesting. If you could parlay some of the, the social that goes on in comms tools, something like Slack, into something that was queryable to understand when people had this problem and what was a useful outcome from that, that kind of semantic powered search, you're almost able to build up the knowledge base. You're making the tacit explicit in the organization. So I think there's two parts that I'm excited about here. One is of text analysis and being able to use a machine to do that. One is to be able to understand what people are saying and when they're making progress. And the other is to be able to surface those conversations that happened weeks, months, years ago, back in other contexts to try and make the, the tacit a little bit more explicit. That's stuff I'm quite excited about. So essentially being able to to mine the actual social learning to sit there and go so that was a real gem i i, I that should be shared with other people it's actually interesting because our developers have talked a couple of times about how often they search slack for past solutions yeah yeah <laughs> and, and it depends whether you want to pay for the damn thing or not so you but they give you the you, the apis there so you kind of like you know it's certainly where we start with this sort of stuff like i'm sure this has come up before and the sort of search will get you a, a, a way down that but it's almost that that sort of crowdsourced knowledge base. And, you know, I think about, the, you know, if an organization had a strategic problem, they could come up with a, a social learning event, uh, a MOOC, a massive open online course or something like that, where they posed questions, got people talking about it, and then they'd have a crowdsourced knowledge base that they could use a machine to pick out where the best threads came from or where particular trends were showing in those threads and, and potentially crowdsource that up as to say, this is the knowledge base. So, you know, it used to be that we you know, I don't know that I ever did it, but certainly there was a trend of trying to video subject matter experts for years in the sort of knowledge transfer area. Like if someone's an expert in something, then we'll sit them down in front of a video camera for as long as it's humanly possible and then just capture all of that and put it somewhere. You know, not hugely useful or, or, or practical or, or, or sort of long-lived. But the, the theme of making what it is people thought or their opinion of something findable, searchable, um, in, in some way, shape or form remains. And I think that could be a big piece of, of, of value that we could unlock if we understood a bit more about what people were saying when they were saying it. This whole area of um, natural language processing is still really quite primitive. And you gave a really nice description of it in your um, Learning by Working virtual conference um, session where it's sort of looking at patterns of occurrences of words. Even with the technology being so primitive, what sort of results are you starting to get, Ben? So, yeah, you're quite right, Robin. It's, it's basic. And, you know, it's, it's one of those tasks that's quite easy for a human to do. We can make judgments about the, the value of two different pieces of text really quite quickly. But trying to codify that into a machine, into a system about how you came to that judgment is incredibly difficult and, and quite subjective. So uh, we can only do relatively basic things at the moment, like understanding whether something has probably demonstrated what we would call a higher order piece of thought and when i'm saying higher order critical thought i'm i'm imagining that people are taking 
two or more ideas together to come to a conclusion in some way, shape or form. And we can also understand the grammar, the tense, the structure of what they say. So, I mean, one of the things is I, I'm limited to English at the moment. So if you wanted to do this for different languages, we'd have to start again. But at the moment, within that sort of routine, what we're asking the machine to do is to understand patterns or to create hypotheses about patterns between words to see whether it can consistently arrive at a label that we've given it. So in advance, we send a human through, uh, or, or one or two, to actually make sure that it's, it's a reconcilable judgment as to whether things are, are good or bad in a very simple evil versus good sort of world. Is it a zero, lower order, or is it a one, higher order? And that's quite subjective, but we have a rubric and some research about, about how we come to that. So with that training data in hand, the machine can look for patterns between words to understand whether or not it can consistently predict that label given a different pattern. And we can help in terms of what we call hyperparameters, sort of things that, that we know from research, like if it's a particularly short comment, it's unlikely to be higher order. And we can use that to sort of augment the results of the machine and, and, and poke it in the right direction. The sorts of things that we're getting out of it at, at that point are kind of threefold. We, we call it informational, uh, micro-behavioral, and macro-behavioral information. So when I'm talking about informational um, sort of background, what I'm talking about is we can understand from an instructional design point of view, which pieces of content that had conversations attached to them seem to lead to more higher order thoughts than lower order thoughts. And you can also apply libraries like um, uh, sentiment, positivity, negativity, and things like that. There's quite a lot of open source libraries that do that. At micro behavioral, we're talking about an individual and you can start to think about the streaks that people go on, for example. So, you know, you look at the last 10 comments, how many of those were higher order in nature? And are people starting to, to put together streaks of consistency? Or are they making the occasional good thoughts and mostly kind of just holding water? And the final one is the macro trend is how can I sum this up to understand the general journey that a set of people went through and whether or not people appear to be pushing towards a new behavior in this particular area or not as, as an aggregate as a whole. And so we've got lots of signals um, at, at that point. It probably takes a, a, a human to, to interpret some of those signals to understand the background of what's going on in the organization to apply that logic. But you can see a path to automation there, that if somebody's made a number of comments in a row that we judge to be higher order, then we can give them a nudge towards that congratulations, say, hey, look, the last five comments you've made have been fantastic. Keep going like this. The level of detail you're giving us is superb. And if not, then maybe we can push them with some some hints and techniques to say that actually, you know, the best contributors in our in our group, in our community, uh, demonstrate this or give examples like that and and nudge people towards that better activity as they go. Yeah, I've got a whole series of things and things rushing through my mind, Ben. So there's this incredibly powerful in terms of a feedback tool around the learning design and that sort of sense of being able to personalize those responses that you're talking about. But there's also some really interesting things about the fact that it might be get, getting that, those insights to the facilitators that might be part of a conversation really quickly means that they can adapt how they're working really fast as well. I mean, and that's, that's, that's potentially interesting on a couple of points. One is we still get folks that are worried about deploying social because what if somebody says something wrong? And obviously, the, you, I, I disappear off a rabbit hole there to say, well, that's brilliant, because if somebody said something wrong, then they were thinking it. And if they said it, then you've got a chance. And if they didn't say it, you'd never know. So, um, but, you know, how can we highlight people to, to potentially get involved in those, in those areas to set people right? 
that's important. But I think the other area where I've seen people do this is actually to judge the facilitators themselves or the lead educators in, in certain circumstances. How can I understand the difference between a really high quality teacher and someone who could perhaps improve and contribute a little bit more? And you've seen it from from studies of teachers that, you know, there are for all of the teachers in the world. And I'm sure there are many wonderful ones. There are a relatively minor percentage who are outliers who are fantastic. And then there's everybody else who's got a job. And so understanding what a fantastic facilitator does and the difference that can make could be huge. So it might even be that you don't really go to the learner with some of that feedback. You use it to to help a teacher improve their practice. Mm. The other side of this is that being able to order that the comments into a higher order thinking that they're the ones that then can be lead to the insights and the knowledge capture and have that build that sort of real um, learning culture and capture that process as well. Yeah, and I, and I guess we're coming full circle back to the whole recommendation sort of routine here because the recommendation stuff's coming because we're, we're so rich in content. There's so much content that I need some sort of curator to, to, to get down on it. And we're, we're back there again to say, if I've got all this social conversation, if Slack's taken off, if Yammer's going through the roof, then being able to bring a degree of focus to the things that appear to matter is the next sort of layer. So we come full circle again to say, we're not short of information, but we're potentially short of insight. And maybe this could help. That's a really nice concept and idea. In actual fact, the machines can help us see the insights. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, there's lots of the boogeymen of machines coming to replace us and things like that. And there, there may be some truth to elements of that. But overwhelmingly, we should be looking at opportunities for machines to improve our practice. And, you know, there's great opportunity here for us to focus on things that really do make a difference and not have to do the data cleansing, the searching, the sorting, the all the rest of it that basically doesn't add any actual value. It doesn't bring us to an action or an outcome. It just gets us to the to the starting point. If we can use a machine to do some of that mundane stuff and and nudges towards things that are would be genuinely useful interventions, then that's a pretty good use of that technology for me. Mm. So I always like to finish the podcast on a little bit of a call to action for people who are listening, who will sit there and go, wow, that sounds exciting. If the only person's listening to this podcast, Ben, what would be your advice about the first steps to get started? Well, I, I guess I, I'd say you've got to arm yourself with a little bit of a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of insight into how things like machine learning actually work. And I don't mean you've got to get into the weeds of it. And I mean, goodness knows, I don't know the depths of this. You don't need to become some sort of analyst or data scientist or anything like that. You really don't. But I do think that increasingly folks are going to come up against uh, vendors, solutions and other things like that that say the way this works is AI. The way this works is machine learning. We're different because of our machine learning. And being able to ask a few probing questions to understand the, the, the depth behind that would be really relevant because otherwise you're just buying into a bit of a magic box that this thing will work and it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of get out clause here in the vendors when folks can say, ah, yeah, well, I can't really explain it to you because it's the machine. The machine's doing the, 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 the pattern recognition and things like that. So, you know, it works because it works. And you're like, well, it's not quite good enough. If you really are going to differentiate, if you really are going to put in something that's truly useful and, and adds value, or if someone's going to charge you more because it's got a bit of machine learning around the outside of it, being able to ask a few pointed questions about, you know, how the machine was trained, how it actually learns, how it understands patterns, what sort of machine learning is being applied here? And is it really machine learning or is it AI? And how will that improve? 
that will will lead on to, to some deeper conversations or not, as the case may be, that will help you potentially weed out those folks who are using AI as a marketing mechanism and those folks who are actually giving you some advantage that you could use to your benefit in the near future. It's a really nice thought and way to wrap up then. It's been a, another great conversation that I've really enjoyed. Um, thank you for coming back onto the Learning Way Working Podcast. No, my absolute pleasure, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Learning While Working podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review. If you want to find out more about Sprout Labs, go to sproutlabs.com.au. We regularly run webinars and publish ebooks and guides about learning while working.